Education. On behalf of Wilm and myself, I just want to express a real sense of gratitude for having been invited up here to spend a week with you in this beautiful spot. Uh, gotten to know some of you enough to call you by first names and uh, some of you enough to know that you're better tennis players than we are. And, uh, I, I think both of us have enjoyed sitting up in front here, enjoyed the singing so much. Uh, it's so great to just be part of vast body of people singing praises to God. Uh, that was true at General Assembly too, with all those men's voices just really singing every time. It was, it's great. And if any of you come to Chicago, uh, look us up. Give us a call. If you need a place to stay, we have a fairly good-sized house. We have two guests' bedrooms that we always uh, keep open when they're not occupied with other visitors. Uh, and if they're open, you need a place to stay, we'd love to have you stop in. If it's just a cup of coffee, if it's a game of tennis, <laughs> or golf. Round of golf, that too. Home court advantage. You bet. We bring our own cheering section. We have our own rules. <laughs> Mr. Sheep. Snowball fight. Shame on you. We'll have family camp at your place. <laughs> we'll talk about that on the way out. It, it has been a delight, though. We've really enjoyed getting to know you folks. Now, Jay, your question. Yes. Turn to Mark 10. I think Jay has a question about Mark 10. Where's my red chalk? The, the chalk disappeared. There's some white. Okay. Jay raised a good question during break time and said, I think everybody needs to address that. It's something I never thought of before. Uh, so, Jay, would you ra raise the question? Uh, Mark 10, 17 and 018, I guess, you know. Uh, as he was setting out on the journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, my question was, and my challenge, I guess, to you was, it sounds to me like that's an FM now, and an absolute moral judgment, not imperative action. Good. Is it now? Yes. I never picked it up before. Uh, I had raised the question earlier this week about value. I said, is value, first of all, a noun or is it first of all a verb? And I concluded that value was first of all a noun because it is something that God implants in his universe and implants in us, and we have to then respond to it. The same thing is true with good. I never thought of it. Good is, first of all, a noun. Goodness, something that exists. And now, once you have the true good, which is God, as Jesus tells us there, now we can compare ourselves to that true good. So it's, first of all, a noun, and secondly, a comparative adjective. Point well taken. You've added to my lecture for the next time. Yes, uh, Mrs. Rowan. 
Okay, back in Genesis, God created everything and he said it was good and it was very good. And there, I think you can use it both ways, as a noun and as an adjective. The original creation was true goodness. But in relationship to the Father, who is the good, it was also a comparison of being good. Good point. Thank you. Yes, John. I missed the noun in verse 18 of Mark 10. To me, it looks like it's a Oh boy, here we go. Who's a grammar teacher around here? We may <laughs> what am I missing? Hang on a minute. Uh, what verse are we looking at again? Yes. Why do you call me good? The reference there good is back to the previous one where he said good teacher. Why do you say that I am a good teacher? There is no one good, no one is good but one, that is God. And there were no one, no one is good there again it seems to be the predicate <laughs> no, grammatically you're correct. Uh, grammatically you are correct. It is first used as an adjective of teacher, and then it becomes a predicate adjective. No one is good. In that sense, it can be seen as a predicate adjective. I think we have knocked that point sufficiently and can move on. Uh, but I think it can. I think it's both. I, I think that good, uh, goodness. Is yeah, and and God the Father is goodness personified, and in this sense Jesus is talking here about the good. In that sense, and now, yes, yes, Ellen. Uh, not to change the subject, but but please do. <laughs> um, going back uh, several lessons ago, uh, you gave us the definition of education as you read. Or recreation and redevelopment. Redevelopment, uh, which takes into account the fall, the fallen nature of the child, and the, uh, you also equated that educational process with sanctification as well. And I think the question was brought up at the time: Doesn't that presuppose a justification that has already taken place in the in the child if we're if we're recreating and making progress in sanctification? Assuming that there's already a justification there, you said, well, sometimes, but sometimes no, and those those that aren't are going to be resisting uh, that process of change and sanctification. They're the ones who are going to be causing all kinds of trouble and everything like that. Uh, my question, though, is at what point and how can the Christian school bring the issue of the child's salvation home to the child at an early time? working, of course, with the church and the family. Uh, but, you know, isn't there really a necessity for the Christian school in the early years to bring this point home to the children? Uh, and do we make a real mistake if we go, as many churches, and I think even some Reformed churches and CRC churches and perhaps even OPC churches have done, and that is assume that the children of uh, of regenerate parents are already regenerate, a presumptive regeneration. There are a number of things in your yeah. commentary that I could uh, respond to, uh, but the matter of justification, necessitating true education, or preceding true education, is, a, I think, a very good point. Uh, justification is the act by which God 
justifies us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a one-time act on the part of God. Sanctification being that long process by which God helps us on the road. And I am defining true education now as that process of sanctification from the moment of justification on. Now, there are going to be some areas where you say, I don't know when exactly that occurs. What I was trying to do, and I may need to refine this more, I'm trying to recognize by the adjective true that there is always the possibility of false education, pseudo-education. And that if someone is learning things which eventually are going to culminate in greater damnation, he's really getting a pseudo-education. If he is getting true recreation and redevelopment, so he is once again restored to God, and he's restored to a right relationship with man and to the world around him, then I put the adjective true in there. Now, you still ask the question about how can the school confront, how can a teacher at home or at school confront children with that basic question of salvation? I think you can do it in a lot of ways. A lot of different opportunities are going to arise if you're sensitive to it. I, I had the privilege back in 1970 to 1972 when I was finishing my doctorate to teach at the University of Iowa with a really Duke's mixture of students. There were some of the wildest hippies imaginable in my classes, uh, flag burners. Oh, awful. I taught essentially this stuff to those students at the University of Iowa. And I didn't always uh, uh, come out so boldly as I dare here But what I would do is a lot more Socratic dialogue with them and force them to ask questions about fundamental issues. Where is your authority? Who is your final author? And they're pushed back and they finally say, well, John Dewey. What makes him better than Plato? You've got to have something better than that. And you push them back and a number of kids, by the grace of God, would come to me after class and say, you're a Christian, aren't you? Sure am. <laughs> uh, may I talk to you? That kind of thing. I just through the curriculum, through the material of educational philosophy and educational history, I could confront them with Jesus Christ. When I ask questions about evaluation, if you are going to talk about goodness or badness, being better or best, you eventually are going to have to come up with a perfect model of the most important thing in the school, which is the teacher, and the only one that classifies as perfect is Jesus Christ. What are you going to do? We can do that with kids at all levels. Uh, We can do it with singing, the kinds of songs we pick up. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you use that as a way of talking and asking. Do you study the Bible? Does Jesus love you? Do you love Jesus? And that, that kind of thing is very natural. Uh, our, our Christianity has to just, in a sense, ooze out of us. It has to dominate our, our lives, our talking, our thinking. And, so, uh, and if it does, our students will 
be confronted. And they should be confronted. Don't assume that all the kids in that Christian school are Christians. Don't make that assumption. A lot of times you'll find that they aren't. Am I answering your question, Ellen? Or still missing it? That's a good point, and it's a very, very powerful factor uh, in a lot of Christian schools. They, they simply assume that all the kids there are regenerate, presumptive regeneration. And it does affect the way you teach. It affects the way you build your curriculum, what you pack into it. And I would say, don't make that assumption. Don't make it. Other questions? Yes, done. Since uh, day one, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has uh, advocated Christian day schools and uh, as opposed to uh, state public, public schools. Within the last five or ten years, we have had added to that mixture uh, a very strong and seems growing movement of homeschooling. Uh, my experience as a pastor going back 20, 25 years was there's always a bit of tension between parents who had their children in Christian schools and parents who sent their kids to the public schools. And now we have added uh, another group of Christian parents who teach their children at home. Uh, I get the feeling sometimes that uh, one or the other of those groups uh, thinks that they are doing the, uh, the by far the, uh, the preferred uh, uh, task and they look down on, on uh, the other or the others. Do you have any uh, wisdom to help us get through that or do you think that we are doomed to maybe have uh, separate congregations that uh, <laughs> uh, tolerate only one of those groups? You all heard the question. Do I think we are doomed to have separate bodies that we can't function together, uh, homeschoolers, Christian schoolers, public schoolers. Uh, no, no. I, I really believe that some of that tension is already dis disappearing, especially between homeschoolers and Christian schoolers. Uh, there, there have been communities that have been torn apart over that question. Uh, where your cousin was out in Orange City, Iowa, uh, when a couple of families started homeschooling, boy, there was war uh, in that community because 
what do they think they are? You know, they're better than we are? And the Christian school isn't good enough for, for their kids? You know, all this kind of talk. Uh, and it got nasty with some families. Thankfully, by the grace of God, people are beginning to realize that homeschoolers can and do a very good job. And there are some very real benefits to homeschooling. So there's a much greater acceptance now than there was five or ten years ago. The challenge, I think, Don, to me as a pastor, and we have all three in our congregation. We have a couple of families that have put their children in public schools because of cost. They, they simply can't afford the tuition. They don't want the help. The majority of them have them in Christian schools, and there are a couple of homeschoolers. To pray for all three during the congregational prayer. It's so easy for me, because of my background, just to pray for the Christian schools, since we're renting the facilities of a Christian school. I need to pray that those mothers who are teaching their children in the home do a good job, that they be equipped and they carry on. And those who are in public schools, that they not get sucked into the system, that they stand up for their faith and not become corrupted by secularism. So I really have to make work of that. And then another dimension of that is in the youth group. High school kids are strange. Are there any around here? <laughs> they're, they're strange creatures. They're at an awkward age. And, and what they tend to do is band together in one corner of the room and talk about their teachers. Yeah, you've had the same experience. Our kids aren't unique in it. And the kids who go to the Christian high school get in one group and they talk about their teachers and what happened in that class on Friday and, and the kids in the public school go to different public schools and they don't have anybody to talk to so they feel sort of out of it and alone and uh, they're wallflowers and the ones who are homeschooled uh, talk about the <laughs> <laughs> no that that hasn't been our experience we have we have had just one young lady who and has been part of our youth group, uh, and not regularly, who was homeschooled. And now, what is uh, Arwen? Is she 14 this year? Or is she 15? She's 15. She, just, she was just 15, and she graduated from high school at the top of her class after being there for one year, at 15 years old. And she's a homeschooler all the way through up until that last year, and then they put her in school so she'd get a high school diploma and stuff. And uh, none of our kids dare to talk to her. <laughs> her vocabulary just blows them out of the water. Uh, oh, yeah, she, it's incredible. Uh, and I'm embarrassed sometimes. I, excuse me, Arwen, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, never heard of that before. Uh, <laughs> why don't you go ask your mom? <laughs> So we've got to learn to live together. And, and, and it's hard work to overcome some of those little barriers and the little walls we build up. That's a challenge to us as pastors, I think. Yes, Barbara? Uh, this homeschooling thing is fairly new. And I'm thankful that it was not a thing to do when I was just here. I think I would have gone crazy. But I think the challenge is that the parents are trying to do this when they shouldn't. Yep. I, I could give you two very good examples, but I won't. Uh, they're not here right now. They're not here. No, 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 no. Uh, 
I tried to address that yesterday when I was talking about gifts and so. Not everybody is gifted. Not everybody is equipped by God to be a teacher. And uh, some parents ought not to tempt it because uh, they're going to botch it up. But just one further comment. You say that the children couldn't read at fifth grade. They're still seven years ahead of the students in Chicago public schools. <laughs> When you study educational history, so many things come around again. And, and we're all of a sudden reinvented this very old-fashioned idea. It's a brand new. Uh, Robin. And that's a point that we can tie in with your comments, Barbara. Uh, that the same rule that I applied while I go to schools about good discipline equals good teaching applies equally well to home schooling. If the mother can't discipline those children in the home, you're never going to get around to reading and math and spelling and those kinds of things. There were a couple of other questions. Yes? Uh, you asked here on the session eight of the teachers are good teachers born or are they made? And the answer was yes. And uh, you know, he said that some are gifted to, toward that, and then others, uh, there's certainly those that are gifted that need to be developed. And uh, for a while, I happened to be a, a Sunday school superintendent uh, 10 years ago. Now, Nancy's husband, Randy, has uh, taken on those reins. The Lord bless him. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he needs it, and I needed it then. In the in the issue of, and I'm, I'm asked the question is, what help can you give me and him and others that find themselves in that kind of position? Of how do we, as a superintendent, and that kind of thing, train teachers? Uh, do you have any suggestions? But I mean, books or, or or organizations that I mean, I searched for good material to train Sunday school teachers and uh, uh, didn't find too many good ones. Have you seen the tape that our Christian Ed Committee in Philadelphia, Tom Tyson, has put up on training? Not recently. Oh. Okay. All of, the, all of the churches that were represented at GA were given free copies. Uh, if your church has not gotten one of those, by all means call Philly and say, send me one of the tapes on uh, teacher training for Sunday school. 
Tom Tyson's department has produced one, and uh, that's where I'd certainly start. Yeah. I'll, you may want to to identify somebody in your church or in your community who could help train teachers and maybe organize uh, before your season starts, organize one or two uh, training lessons. Uh, what I would suggest you do, and I think this will work well in a Sunday school setting, is to get your teachers together before you start your next group of classes, your sessions, and talk about goals and objectives. Try to get them to articulate, at least in their minds and hopefully on paper, what is it you're really trying to teach these kids. And if they have that clear, if, if they're clear on what they're trying to accomplish, then you can begin to help them find me methods and materials that will help them reach those goals. If they don't know what they're trying to do, if they don't have a foggiest notion of what they're really trying to achieve, then, then you're really behind the eight ball. So, but call Tom Tyson and ask for the tape, the video. Yes, other questions? Yes, Tammy. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'll, I am not really as conversant in this area of homeschooling uh, resources as other people are. Uh, I don't know, Robin, you know, you've had some materials there you showed me, uh, and some of that looks pretty good. Uh, you could find some. Uh, our son and his wife are part of a homeschooling group in uh, southern Illinois and they organize seminars. So they get together as parents and form sort of a loose association and say, we need help with this. And uh, then they bring somebody in to help them with that. Uh, th there must be, yeah, that's the kind of training I'm talking about. And uh, there are a lot of resources out there, more and more. Uh, Abeka down in Florida is a big producer. Uh, Bob Jones, is South Carolina is, uh, the Academy, um, Christian Liberty Academy up in Northern Illinois, uh, they're all producing just gobs of material. So uh, find some of those, get on their mailing lists and go to it. Yes? I, okay, the question is, uh, because of the growth of the homeschooling movement, what's happening to the overall Christian school movement? Is it still growing? Is it shrinking? I don't have up-to-date data on that. 
Uh, from what I have seen in various places, I would conclude that the overall population of homeschoolers and Christian school combined is greater than it was five years ago. Uh, that is the impression I get, but I don't have good data to back me up. Uh, I used to be in all that stuff, and I'm just too far away from it now. Yes, Scott? Uh, I know you covered this before, and I guess I should take that note, but that definition of democracy that you have, could you restate that again for us? Yeah, this is something that creates a lot of confusion in a lot of people's minds. I'll let me just back up a little bit and refresh your memories as to how I came to that question to address it. Uh, I had addressed is it? I was getting the message that I but, uh, I had addressed the question of democracy uh, in my doctoral dissertation in the work that I did in analyzing Boyd Boda who was a sidekick and friend of John Dewey and if you read any of the writings of that progressive education movement during the 20s, 30s, 40s, they were always preaching democracy. We had to have democratic schools, and we must teach our children to be democratic citizens. And when you analyze it, what you have there in the writings of those men is a secularized version of the kingdom of God. It's a religion. They are not talking about the operation of the government. That is really a different subject. When I talk about democracy as being the enemy of Christianity, as being the antithesis of the kingdom of God, I am talking about a philosophy or a set of ideas, a religion which has as its cardinal principles, its primary themes, the sovereignty of man. Man is autonomous. He is self-governing. Nobody can ever tell him what to do. There is no God. That's a myth. Religion is man-made kind of phenomenon. You can ignore it because it's really... If it works for you, fine. That's okay. But it's strictly a human phenomenon. It's a totally secularized. But they, they've kept all the trappings of Christianity that they still want to have heaven on earth. And they talked vigorously about the heaven on earth. The great prophets of democracy were Thomas Jefferson and people of that sort, and Andrew Jackson. Those are the great prophets to whom we listen and bow down. Uh, and some of the literature in the 1920s, when we were trying to make the world safe for democracy, you remember that war? It was a war to make the world safe for democracy. You say, what do you mean by democracy? What are you trying to make it safe for? And it was something that was totally secular. So I'm saying that philosophy is in direct competition to Christianity because Christianity has as its core the sovereignty of God and the kingdom of God. We live in a kingdom. I am a kingdom citizen. And I will bow before the king. And the Democrat says, you don't have to bow to anybody. In fact, genuflection, or bowing the knee, is a stupid term. Wipe it out of your vocabulary because there's no, no need for it, no justification for it. That's what I'm talking about. 
Now, when, when I talk that way, oftentimes people become alarmed and say, oh man, he's trying to overthrow the government. He sounds like a 70s rebel. No, I was not a rebel in the 70s or any other time. The governmental system that God has seen fit to give us in these United States is a Republican form of government coming out of Roman jurisprudence, Roman legal system, which is very compatible with the Presbyterian form of government. The Presbyterian form of church government and the Republican form of government that we operate with are very, very compatible. So I'm not anti-government. I'm not anti-representative authority. Anything of the sort. I'm talking about a philosophy, an idea, a set of ideas that is at odds with the gospel. So, John Dewey is, like Boyd Boda, a very interesting man. John Dewey was raised in a home where the mother was a very strict congregationalist and tried hard to raise her son in the Christian faith. The father was a rebel, for all practical purposes, an atheist. And John Dewey has that strange mix. And now he goes off to school and he imbibes all different kinds of things and pretty soon he makes his choices for his father's side, really. But he keeps vestiges of the Christianity that his mother tried to imbibe in. One of the things I found so fascinating through that whole study was that the language of these people was so religious. It was intensely religious language. And there was intense devotion that they were trying to inculcate into their students for this wonderful new gospel. And if we all just become Democrats, we'll save the world. There will be no more sickness, no more health, no more death, no more dying. We will... Of course, <laughs> they got frustrated every time they turned around. Because they'd just you know, been preaching it for 20 years, and here comes World War II. Rats. system isn't working. So, yes? Uh, when I hear you talk about democracy that way, it makes me think of some of the things I've been reading actually makes me think about a professor that I had too. Uh, is there an emphasis on everybody's equal and you make value judgments to drive wedges between people and that's a no-no. Yep. So that you can't say there are saved and lost, there's good and bad. And then so values, uh, clarification, you choose your own values because you're sovereign, you're autonomous, but they hadn't better be values that say, you know, the kid next door to you who wants to be homosexual is wrong or bad. Your values can't do that. They're, they're because of democracy, because he's equal to you. That's truth for him, but this is truth for you, and we're all equal, and nobody's worse than anybody else. This is what yep. you're talking about, yep. right? right? I had a professor in a Christian school who had a very bad uh, sociology textbook and thought of something from it. He thought it was, I think, the introduction of the book pointed out how it would be an imprinted intention of the subject and of the book of the author not to make value judgments. Go look at the headhunters. We don't say they're bad. We just say they're different. Look at the way they did, and so on. And it goes through the book, the whole thing. That's that's precisely what they preach. 
and the liberal, what I think we can safely say, these are the liberals today over against us who are conservative. The liberals have redefined sin. The liberals have a new category of sins. You know what they are? Homophobia is one. Racism is another one. Uh, sexism is definitely one. Those are horrible sins. And they all come out of what I call the democratization of the church. And that's been a process that, that's been going on for, for decades, I think. Whereas the church is becoming democratized and we've gradually adopted all of those basic principles. Uh, you are dead wrong if you ever pass a judgment about that homo being bad. That's a sin. Oh yes, that that's terrible. Terrible to me. Yes, Mr. C. I know, but see, my mother, my father, and all my school teachers for all those years said, you may throw snowballs. And I'm just sort of reacting to that yet. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I was jesting with you. I thought you knew me enough by now so I could... No, we didn't have any snow last winter. Almost none. Well, wait a minute. I would say you can you have a republic when you have the representative process. Well, representative process is built on certain principles. The federal, the Republican form of government that we have has as the basic principle that you must know and obey the laws of the land before you may become a lawmaker. That's the basic principle. You cannot vote, you cannot run for office until you have reached a certain arbitrary age, at which time we think you have learned the laws, you have understood them, and you have demonstrated your willingness to obey the laws. Only if you are a law abider can you become a lawmaker. The democratic principle is just the opposite. You are, by virtue of being born equal, you are entitled to be a lawmaker and to participate in the lawmaking process. If, if the Democrat is going to be truly consistent with his principles, he ought to allow one-year-olds the right to vote. He ought to allow two-year-olds the right to make decisions, to sit as judges. If you want a demonstration of democratic ideology put into practice, read the book Summerhill. How many of you have ever read the book Summerhill? Nobody? Well, Summerhill is a worthwhile book to read. Not because it has good message, but because you see there one of the clearest demonstrations in practice of democracy at work. And there are no rules in Summerhill. This was, a, this was an actual school in England where a true Democrat 
set up a school and organize it according to democratic principles. The kids could do whatever they wanted. And if three-year-old girls wanted to crawl in bed with six-year-old boys, or if nine-year-old boys wanted to crawl in bed with 12-year-old girls, that was fine. And if you didn't want to go to class, that was fine. There was one thing about Summerhill, though. Anybody ever caught in the headmaster's tool room, touching his tools, would be put to death. You could bring your own hammer to school and beat up on the grand piano. That was fun. If that helped your expression, if that helped your ego, that's fun. But if you use my hammer and don't bring it back, you will die. I'm over-exaggerating a little bit. But a crazy, crazy illustration of democracy tried applying across the board. Nobody has to bow the knee to anybody. Nobody ever has to say yes to authority because there is no authority except you. Yes, uh, Susan. The, Montes the Montessori's are strange breeds. You'll find all different kinds. Uh, I've never been able to figure out Montessori schools because some of them practice that. They try to do exactly that thing and, and they're chaotic. And there are others that are highly disciplined and highly rigid. And they both claim to come out of the same roots. So they're, they're an, an enigma to me. Montessori schools are. Larry. That, that's been my experience, too, and uh, some of them, you know, they, they are just plain bad news. <laughs> if you want to really bring out the total depravity of your children, send them to Montessori for a month. Uh, Nancy. Nancy's comments that we have to be very careful about making these judgments about homeschool. But did you notice I, I, when you started off, Nancy, you said, I want to take a parting shot. <laughs> and I, I thought, this, we're in war here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, I but no, you weren't objective at the outset, but you were at the end. Right. 
Some good comments. Yes. You talked about voting. I thought of one of my pet peeves. It's a stupid statement. Everybody vote. It doesn't matter how you vote. Just so you vote. And there's a lot of truth to that, I think. Uh, the, the biggest precincts are in the graveyards. Yes. The question is, what do you do if somebody in your church is not doing a good job of to you? How do you respond? Uh, Alan and Roland, can I ask you for advice on this? Should I tell them to read the history of the Lofton Appeal? <laughs> I, let, me, let me just give you the background to that comment. At General Assembly last week, we had this appeal from this Mr. Lofton who took issue very sharply with a couple in his church for the way they were allowing their young son to write on the board in the fellowship hall and created a great big fight and fiasco. And he simply went over there and took the, the marker away and said, you know, you may do that. And the child was drawing he hadn't been trained properly, according to Mr. Lofton. And he put it down, don't do that again, and a couple minutes later he comes back and the child is doing it again, so he takes it away. And, and to jump ahead to some of the controversy, uh, what was the line that he used? To, do you remember the down about it? You're irrelevant. Oh, yeah, he, he told the parents you're irrelevant, but uh, the, he, he described the wife's reaction as the yapping of a chihuahua. Yeah. <laughs> That, that would be a lesson in how not to respond. <laughs> yeah, now you see where I'm going. That's how you should not respond. I haven't said how you should. Gently. Gently, folks. Yes, Lynn. Yes, that's certainly good advice. Lynn is saying that if you're going to be homeschooling, the tendency, the danger is that your child comes to think of you as the sole authority. 
and you have to teach them that's not the case. You are a parent functioning as the prime authority, but there are all kinds of other authorities out there that they also must obey. Uh, and that's true you know, in all kinds of settings. Kids have to learn to respect the, lo- the cop who walks the beat. They have to learn to respect the bus driver. They have to learn to respect the, the local citizen officials and so So that has to always be done. It's part of learning to obey. Yes, Rollin? I'd like to take a crack at that question that was asked by the Tuffy. Um, and I begin to approach it by way of, uh, I guess, what we call sphere sovereignty, that in the home, uh, what we're looking at really is, scripturally speaking, basically it's the parents' obligation to raise the children. It's not the churches. It's not the state, certainly. And so um, I don't think it certainly becomes the church's business unless the parents are sinning in the way they're raising their children than it is. So, uh, therefore, my advice would be you have to earn the right to ask personal questions. You have to develop a relationship with people and a rapport that you'd be able to make some genteel uh, helpful suggestions. So when they have that child baptized in the church, the church takes a vow to help with the education of that child, the Christian education, the raising of Okay. Yeah. Let me just. I don't think that. I don't think that goes anywhere beyond the guidelines I just gave. Let me just. Uh, I, I don't know if all of you could pick up the dialogue there. Uh, Roland was saying that there are responsibilities primarily assigned to the parents, and it's their job, and the church ought not to stick its nose into those. Uh, and there is a proverb. I forget where it is about meddling in other people's business. Uh, yeah, there are a couple of them. Uh, and there's one about uh, taking the meddler who takes the dog by the ears. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's what... We have a lady in our church that does that. Meddles in other people's affairs. And I told her, bug off. Keep your nose out. That's not your business. Uh, but you were saying at the same time we do have a corporate responsibility because we take a vow at baptism that we will help and encourage... And how you do that with a parent, set of parents that you think is not doing a good job, how do you do it with your own kids? Suppose your married children aren't doing the job that you think ought to be done. How do you address them? Oh, gently, folks. Gently. Right. I say, it is 12 o'clock. And I have to catch a flight Monday morning. I'm going to bring it to a close. Once again, thank you. It's been a delight to be with you folks this week.